I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. Thank you, thank you. Okay, let's do it. I am Jimmy Cheffin, the host of The Navigationalist, and today we have a great, great show. We will discuss the question, to code switch or not code switch? That is the question. And to help me out, I have a colleague of mine, a great, great friend, scholar, coach, and owner of Apoya Coaching, Dr. Joel Perez. Today we will discuss code switching. What does it actually mean? And I am so curious about the concept of code switching with my bow tie, corduroy suit wearing self. So curious. And with me, I have my co-host, Dr. Carolina Bailey. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Super happy to be here, like always. Thank you. And let me remind my podcast listeners, if you have a question for our navigationless guest, please visit our website at greenbookforhighered.com. Okay, let's start off with the first question with Carolina at the cafe. Hello, my name is Carla. I just moved to a college in Texas. My mentor told that I need to learn how to take into account my audience better to move up, asking me to go switch better. That is not fair. I feel people of color and minority populations have to do so disproportionately more than their white counterparts. Do I really need to code switch? My colleagues and I discuss this term quite often. You know, my students deplore the term, the concept that everybody code switches. They see it as a way of pleasing those who are not like us. They see it as a way of supporting this hierarchy of cultures and behaviors. So let's get to it. All right. First question of why are we the only ones that code switch? Uh, Dr. Joel Perez. We may feel like we're always we're the ones always being asked to change, but in reality, the institutions need to change, right? And until the leadership realizes that um, and understands that institutions were not created for people like us, people of color, uh, people from historically marginalized communities to be successful, then uh, change will be slow to happen or not happen at all. So for Carla, I would begin by affirming her her sense of unfairness. Um, and I begin by asking her, um, one, if she was okay uh, after hearing what her mentor had to say. Like, how is she feeling, right? Right. And that is on my mind as well. And someone told me that I would feel offended, violated, right? The impact of daily insults and invalidations on underrepresented faculty, and especially uh, women of color. So these emotions need to be talked about, right? Affirming um, sadness, anger, all those things need to be talked about. Uh, and I would also want to know what, what prompted her mentor to give her the feedback that they did. Right, exactly. Why would their mentor say that? And this mentor could be a 
mentor of color, I'm thinking, a underrepresented faculty describing the way of the land, so to speak. There are five reasons we code switch, right? One is natural. Our reptilian brains take over, right? Two, to fit in. Ugh, to fit in a culture. And three, to get something. And I know this would come up in this conversation when we code switch to get something like peace, to be secretive. And five, to help convey a thought to communicate properly. So what type of questions do you have for Carla? So, you know, was it a thing that, that Carla did um, that she described to her mentor and then her mentor telling her, well, I think you need to learn how to account for your audience better. So um, always as a coach, right, getting more context would be helpful. Um and I would actually ask her what she believes code switching means and or taking into account her audience. Because um, I think sometimes we don't always know or we assume that it's code switching um, or we label it code switching. So I always want to know. So l- let me understand what your definition of code switching is. My guess is Carla has the same definition that I do, but I just want to have her hear herself describe it. Dr. Carolina Bailey, please. Can you give us your own definition of code switching? Uh, this term has been used more like in linguistic terms, mm-hmm. and some listeners might not be familiar in this uh, in this context. Yeah, no, that that's good. So I always so when I do presentations on this, I, I give uh, I give an example of what code switching is or what it may sound like. And so I took this from the NPR podcast called Code Switch. Um, and this is what I read. I, I say, so you're at work one day and you're talking to your colleagues in that professional, polite kind of buttoned up voice that people use when they're doing professional work stuff. Your mom or your friend or your partner calls on the phone and you answer. And without thinking, you start talking to them in an entirely different voice, still distinctly your voice, but a certain kind of your voice less suited for the office. You drop the G's at the end of your verbs, your previously undetectable accent, your southern draw or your sing-songy Caribbean lilt or your Spanish-inflected vowels or your New Yorker, it suddenly turned way up, way up. You rush your mom or whomever off the phone in some less formal syntax. Yo, I'ma holla at you later. Hang up and get back to work. Then you look up and you see your coworkers looking at you and wondering who the hell you'd morph into for the last few minutes. That right there, that's what it means to code switch. Um, so I would say when we feel like we have to act a certain way to be more widely accepted, when we have to speak a certain way or we have to try to fix our accent in quotes fix uh, or told that, that, that that is code switching. Okay, okay, yes. Code switching is an adjustment. But underrepresented faculty are usually the only ones that do this, right? It is a strategy to successfully navigate interracial interactions. It is when we adjust our speech or our clothes that we wear in exchange for fair treatment, quality service. Likes, friendships, opportunity, peace, and on and on. So when is code switching a problem? Yeah, and I I would say in my experience, 
if it if it's if you feel if you believe you the person who's feeling like they ha- you have to code switch if you feel connect between what you value and what your organization values that's where i believe there there might be obviously some disconnect incongruency um and then maybe the question is can you really stay at that place because code switching can be so exhausting right if we are talking about code switching how i'm talking about code switching it is so exhausting so i am thinking we should assess our code switching at the workplace ask ourselves questions are you ambitious how ambitious are you do you seek advancement no matter the cost are you willing to code switch for short gains and 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 i think and i'm sure my podcast guests would agree with me too is knowing what you value for yourself and your career is imperative for deciding if and how to code switch but that is tough as you said some of us have been in this fight and flight mode for so long we don't know when we code switching is actually a problem so uh, what are those signs um, if you feel like you are losing yourself in being at that institution or that work environment, some people are okay with that, right? I mean, that's their value. That's they're okay with that. They can, they don't have a problem doing that. But for others of us, we begin to feel one tired. We begin to to realize we're losing who we are as people, and we're losing our our values are being compromised. Uh, and that's when I think it's wrong. And, and you as the person have to determine that. Yes, the institution has to change. Are you in a place to help the institution change? And if so, that's a different conversation. But if you feel like, you know what, I'm tired, I'm done. Then it's a conversation of, okay, maybe this isn't the right place for you. Let's move it to a career coaching conversation, right? Um, so let's ask you, let's, let's reflect on some questions to help you get to a point where, you know what, I need to leave. Uh, I have a client that I'm working with right now who is at that point where they realize that that institution is not honoring them for who they are. And so um, so I guess to answer your, go back to, I think, your question, Jimmy, I think it becomes bad when we begin to lose ourselves in the organization, but we have to come to a realization that that's actually happening. And for some, they may never realize that. And for others, they do. And then it's a different conversation. Yeah, because sometimes it seems to me that certain, um, you know, talking also to certain colleagues is also the realization that they are expected to call switch, that they are expected to fit in. That's the way to fit in within the within the organization. And I think it actually loses the, the value of, instead of ha- trying to fit culturally in the organization, then it loses the whole, what kind of cultural contribution is the organization open to welcome from me? And I, and I think that that's a huge issue with the, with the code switching if we are always pushed to cultural fits versus what can we actually mm-hmm. contribute by not code switching. Now, code switching often occurs in spaces where negative stereotypes of underrepresented people mm. run. And it has always been a good note. Instead yeah. of being forced to assimilate to the white patriarchal culture, 
underrepresented faculty should be allowed to simply be our awesome, creative, fun, productive, cultural selves. Studies show that those who actually perceive themselves fitting in their organization often downplay their race or gender and promote shared interests with dominant group members and are more likely to have career success. So there are implications of well-being and economic advancement. So for Carla, what are her next steps? Uh, and, and I think for, for Carla, there might be an opportunity. And for some of my clients, it's it's an opportunity if this happens. Is there is there a follow-up? Is there a conversation they need to have with a person who may have asked them to code switch um, to have a better understanding of where they're coming from? And so it moves into a crucial conversation or a difficult dialogue, right? And then giving the person the skills to have that dialogue, if they feel comfortable having that dialogue. If there is some challenges around or power dynamics, right? Is there an opportunity to move from feeling like you had to code switch or, or being a victim of a microaggression or, or a macro aggression or, you know, uh, some of the work around what Ibram Kendi describes of, of moving away from microaggression? But is it an opportunity to point out to that person that just inflicted that on you to say, Hey, what just happened? Help me understand where you're coming from. Because I have some questions about what you're just asking. And I think sometimes we as people of color don't always feel comfortable or don't know how to have those conversations. Or if a white colleague observes it, did you hear what just happened? And let's talk about that. And, and then it's helping that white colleague maybe say, what can you do to help me? So I'm not the person of color who has to raise the issue, but you can do it as an ally. I like how you see a variety of opportunities in this question, Joel. A crucial conversation would be so beneficial for both of these people right here. So uh, what other questions would you have for Carla? So, you know, I think for, for, for Carla, I would also ask her, what advice would you give yourself? Because she asked, you know, she, she asked the question with my clients. I usually like to ask, well, what advice would you give yourself? And if you feel like you would say, no, you shouldn't code switch, then that's your answer. And if you feel like you should, then that's your answer, too. And let's talk about that. Is that something you feel like is fair to you or is it a chance or is it or is it something along the lines of what I said earlier? Time to maybe think about moving on from your organization. Interesting. What advice would I give myself if I was going through this same situation? I'm thinking of many, many, many thoughts, but one that pops in my head is I would assess my code switching by assessing my values, as we mentioned before. But that also includes assessing my environment. I would ask myself, do they talk about who is fit in job interviews? Are employees behaving differently when senior leaders walk in the office? Are employees eating together? Are you encouraged to adjust. And remember, you don't have to code switch. Wow, wonderful discussion for our first question. Now we're off to our second podcast question. Dr. Carolina Bay, please. Uh, hello, my name is Professor Regina. Lately, my supervisor has hinted to me that I should change my appearance for the office space, my clothes, my hair. I sometimes wonder if this is genuine advice. 
It only adds to another one of my complexes. Hashtag ignore them. When I hear this podcast question, I quickly think about the Crown Act, a law that prohibits discrimination based on hairstyle and hair texture. I am not sure, but there is a growing number of states who are passing the Crown Act. Yes, in 2020, women who go into work with their hair worn Mm -hmm. just as it grows from the head or in a protective style like braids, locks, and knots can still lose Mm -hmm. their job or be sent home from school. Scary. Another example of hierarchy of culture, gender, races, ethnicities. 80% of women reported that they changed their hair from its natural state to fit the workplace. So this question doesn't surprise me at all. So what pops in your head? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get, of course, I don't have the, the, the opportunity to get more context, right? What does hinted mean? Did they outrightly tell you you need to do this or did they kind of give you a look? Just like with any microaggression, I think some of the strategies of, you know, can you confirm with other people if they observed it so you know you're not the only one who just saw it happen, right? Um, but I think so. I think it's important, and and of course, I don't have that. Op, I don't have that luxury. So, um, you know, I, I'd like to know: uh, is this the first time it's happened? You know, I'd like to know if the first time if she heard that if she heard them say this, and if she's heard from other pe- professors. And I would ask her what an example of genuine advice would be. And but also the the power relation that there might be, right? Because if there is, if it is another colleague, then I'm thinking right. that probably I'll be more willing to be like, oh, okay, oh, really? Right. You know, kind of like, like a yeah. not an innocent comment, but you'd be like, oh, okay, will make me think. But if this is coming right. from a exactly. supervisor, then I have to like start thinking like, oh my god, I have to buy new clothes. I have to change it. like immediately because it, I feel that power pressure. Yeah. Right. If that's the case. So I think it does matter the power of relationship, too. Wow. There's so much to think about when we experience microaggression, right? So many thoughts, so many questions. Did he or right. she do this before? You are connecting the dots. And we react different, right? Depending on several factors like power and the people around us. And that's when this imposter phenomenon comes to play, right? This makes me think about my therapist. This is when that imposter complex come and play, right? So I'd like to know what complex is complexes mean because there might be a uh, some counseling stuff that might need to happen, right? Or, or therapy. Um, that's a whole other topic, right? Um, but I, I would I would one affirm that it's not right for that to be happening. That particularly in this day and age, and um, and if there's a power dynamic. Um, is it to the point where she needs to get human resources or the provost or the dean um, to bring this up? Um, because it's problematic, I would say it needs to be addressed. Um, and another coaching conversation for her supervisor around how the environment this person is creating, the challenges that they're creating. Uh, but I need to find out from Regina if she feels comfortable having that, or if she wants to take the advice and modify how she looks in order to feel like she's going to be okay, because she may not want to have the conversation. I am so glad we have this question. 
Usually when I have a question, I discuss that question all day or even all week looking for answers as the navigationist. And in a discussion with a colleague, he explained that we as underrepresented faculty must be savvy, which includes impression management, self-monitoring, changing one's self and behavior patterns. But I don't think that is the true way. Inside this big fat question, inside of it all, I hear a history of microaggressions, an unwelcoming culture. Am I the only one? Yeah, and I, I think I think for Regina too, and the institution, right? That there, what type of culture are they creating, uh, or I would say supporting this kind of behavior, right? Um, because it's not right for her to feel that way or to experience that. Um, but if the institution's not ready to hear that or do anything about it, then there's going to be some challenges for 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 her. Um, and so there needs to be a conversation with with Regina about what may be the next steps for her or to find support. Uh, and I think and I would say I want to add that how is Carla or Regina or the other example you're going to give me later? How are they where are they getting their support from? Right. So whether it's a coach or professional coach is one area, but are there colleagues that they can lean into? Um, to help support them through this experience. So one, they know that they're not the only one having these experiences, um, but there's others who may be experiencing the same thing, or and not only at her own institution, but at other institutions. Wow, you are reading my mind. I am thinking about affinity groups. I am familiar with several systems of affinity groups or employee resource groups. Mm -hmm. And if you have one on your campus, I encourage you to participate, to join in. They're very beneficial in your workplace. Mm -hmm. It is a space to feel welcome, address discrimination, bias, concerns, how to address microaggressions, or simply share navigational strategies like we are doing on this podcast today. It is an excellent tool to address racial battle fatigue, but I will not go too far into that. I won't steal your thunder. We will talk about that with the next question. Awesome discussion. And now we're off to question number three. <laughs> Hello. Oh, wait a second. Okay, my, my, my microphone is on. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Hello. I am well aware that code switching takes place. It seems like we are always switching. What does self-care look like for something like this? I cannot do this forever. You know, I am glad and hopeful because people are talking about racial battle fatigue, right? Studying it and defining it and discussing the effects of RBF, how Stereotype threat and the imposter syndrome and others all lead to RBF, racial battle fatigue. And we tell people the cure is self-care, right? Yeah, um, self-care is important. I talk not only uh, with clients who are doing code switching, but other other clients and other coaching um, scenarios. But But a lot of times we forget about self-care. We and I'm I'm guilty of I have been guilty of it myself, and so uh, the one thing I would want to do first is have this person describe to me what self care looks like for them, uh, and what they're currently doing. So one of the questions I ask my clients 
in, in a pre-questionnaire is describe what self-care looks like and how often they're able to do that. Uh, and then usually the follow-up conversation is, are you happy with how often you're doing whatever, how you define self-care? How are you building time or what are you doing to build time in to do more of self-care for yourself? But what does that look like? Myself, I like to play video games from Madden football to old school video games. I'm a Miss Pac-Man fanatic. But what else could I do for self-care? For this person, it could be um, journaling, talking with friends. It could be making sure they take a day away from work. It could be a spa visit, right? Um, it could be exercising. And a lot of times that is a, a big help when we're experiencing racial battle fatigue, eating properly. Um, so those are the things I would talk to this person about and then making sure that they're building that into their schedule and being consistent. Journaling is an incredible beneficial self-care technique. Most people I ask about their self-care tools, they mention journaling. And it doesn't just enhance these feelings of happiness, but it reduces stress, clarifies thoughts and feelings, and helps to get to know yourself a little bit better. But for me, I have lost every journal I've owned. So now my journals are out there. So tell me, how do you use this tool? The journaling piece is really important because as I was working with the previous client, I said, how are you right? How are you journaling about this? Because, because if you leave the institution, you go to a new institution and you start experiencing the same things, a journal will help you to go back and, re and read how you were processing that experience so you don't find yourself in the same situation, right? Because a lot of times history repeats, repeats itself. Um, and this person was like, wow, I, ha I had no idea. And you could also use your journal and your reflections as you have colleagues who are experiencing or things that they should be watching out for. So a journal can be a powerful tool to help us, one, process what we're experiencing, but then also to go back to make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes. And also to help our colleagues, people that come after us, we will be the shoulders that they stand on to help them be successful in navigating some of these complex situations. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think self-care is important, but, but I know that that's self-care looks different for everyone. So I'll be honest with you. Every time we discuss the racial battle fatigue, the imposter phenomenon and other related complexity, it really just, trips me out because I feel like I have everything. It leaves me feeling like I need to be perfect. I need to be super right. person. I need to master everything. Sometimes I don't ask for help. I believe I never know enough. So yes, I feel like sometimes I have this imposter phenomenon. How do we, the podcast audience, how do we do deal with that? Yeah, I mean, the imposter syndrome is real. Uh, it happens. Um, and I would say um, some of the things that people do or, or, or should do, one is to have people around them to support them, to remind them that they do good work. I, I use a Muhammad Ali quote in my presentation. You're the greatest. I always knew I was. Remind yourself that you, you, you've achieved a lot and you belong in that space. 
And the other thing I think, so having colleagues also that you could call people who are like you. Like uh, affinity groups or uh, employee resource groups, right? It's an African-American male group, uh, Latinx group, um, you know, um, an LGBTQ group that want to affirm how you're feeling and then say to then remind you that, yes, no, you're not an imposter. You belong. You do good work. You belong in that space. You have something to contribute. You have a voice to share. Um, You have an experience to share uh, for others to benefit from. So they don't experience the same things. And I know some people experience imposter syndrome much more, um, much more often than others. But it's always I just had a text from uh, someone I was mentoring last night who's who's in a higher ed setting. And he's like, I haven't felt this way since grad school. And I said, it happens. He's like, really? It happens (laughs) all the time? And I'm like, yeah, I go, it's going to. And he's a fairly new professional. And I said, it's going to always rear its ugly head. Uh, and it's reminding yourself and it's finding people who will affirm you, who will and surrounding yourself right with people who are good people, not people who are going to add to the noise or make you feel bad about how you're feeling. Um, I think those are important steps that we need to take as professionals of color, uh, people of marginalized communities, uh, people with who have both seen and unseen disabilities. My child, my youngest boy uh, is dyslexic. and He's not afraid to admit that. And and he reminds himself that, you know, Albert Einstein was dyslexic. I, 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 I can be a I can be a genius and yes, I'm gonna struggle, but I belong and I have something to say and people need to listen to me. Now he's twelve, but he's developing good habits, right? And so and so I, I think those are things that we need to remind ourselves and um and and I think and I think you know coaching could be helpful. I think mentoring, um, you know, affinity groups, all those things contribute to positive a positive mindset. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. I truly enjoyed this conversation. Light bulbs are lit in my head in so many words. So uh, could you give our podcast audience uh, a jewel, one piece of advice? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I, I mentioned this self-care. I think coaching is an extremely helpful tool to help you achieve your goals and, and be successful in the midst of the things that you may experience as a per- professional of color, faculty member of color, uh, and to make sure that you utilize it. I think therapy is important uh, and making sure that you're taking care of yourself from a therapeutic standpoint. Uh, and then I would say visit my website, apoyocoaching.com, uh, to find out more information about how you, how I may be able to partner with you or how we can partner with each other uh, on your journey of being a successful faculty member of color. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really wonderful talk, and the advice is, is yeah. right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, hit the nail, hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Navigational Report 0923. The first thing I'm going to do when I get home is assess my code switching. How often do I do it and when do I do it? For not only me, I'm going to observe my workplace. Who else is code switching? And secondly, I'm going to find a way to address microaggressions at the workplace. There has to be an acronym somewhere. 
and then I'm going to share with my affinity group. And then I'm going to reschedule my massage for next week and I'm going to buy those new Jordans. What? I thought he said go for it. <laughs> well, on our next episode, we will discuss more about navigating the campus with Dr. Leah Hollis and Wanda Martin. See you on our next episode on The Navigationist.